Welcome to Sound and Vision. Conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Golden makes the best acrylics and mediums, core watercolors, and Williamsburg oil paints in New Berlin, New York. An employee-owned company, Golden is dedicated to making the best paints that artists can use in their studios. I've been painting with Golden for over 23 years and I swear by it. Check out their paints at your local art store or at goldenpaints.com. Sound and Vision is also sponsored by Fulcrum Coffee Roasters. They make amazing coffee and ship their beans to your doorstep so you can have incredible coffee at home. I'm an avid coffee drinker and I love the coffee that I get from Fulcrum through their subscription service. There's always new coffee to try and it's always top quality. Check out their coffee at fulcrumcoffee.com and add the code ALFREDSTUDIO to your order and you'll get 20% off. That's a pretty great deal. Fulcrumcoffee.com Why I Make Art is out now. My book from the Sound and Vision podcast has features on 30 artists I've interviewed, tons of quotes from the artists I've had on the pod, and even some sketches from the Sound and Vision guest book. It's 25 bucks well spent, in my opinion. You can get it wherever you get books or from the publisher's website, atelieredictions.com. And if you get it or already have it, please leave a review and rating where you got it. It's been an amazing response from the book, and I hope it gives you inspiration in the studio or in your daily life. Kamruz Aram was born in Shiraz, Iran, and lives and works in Brooklyn, New York. His recent exhibitions include Elusive Ornament at Peter Blum Gallery in New York, Privacy, an exhibition at the Arts Club of Chicago, Un Objet, Un Geste at Gallery Mitterrand in Paris, Lives and Forms, Kamruz Aram and Iman Issa at Z33 House for Contemporary Art and Design and Architecture in Belgium, The New Arabesque, Nature Mort Gallery in New Delhi in India, an object, a gesture, a decor at Flag Art Foundation in New York. In memory of the arabesque at Green Art Gallery in Dubai. Focus, the modern art museum of Fort Worth. Ancient blue ornament, the Atlanta contemporary, an ornament for indifferent architecture at the Museum of Dante de Hendes in Belgium. His work has been reviewed in the New York Times, the New Yorker, Art News, Art Forum, and many other publications. Camus and I talk about coming to the U.S. from Iran, playing drums, moving from figuration to abstraction, looking outside the canon, and much more. Here's our conversation. Well, let's go, let's go back to your... Well, first of all, I've been a fan of your work. I, I realized when I was thinking about Steve that, you know, I think when I first saw your work, it must have been at Oliver Cam's, right? Yeah, that uh, Oliver was my first gallerist and um, almost the first time that I showed my work in New York. I'd shown in uh, a group show at Artist Space before that. But uh, Oliver was kind of um, the first time that I showed publicly in New York, really. Was that the 22nd Street, that small? Upstairs, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, um, I met him while I was still in graduate school. And um, my first, yes, my first exhibition with him was in two thousand four. Right, man, it doesn't it feel like (laughs) three lifetimes ago? 
It's unbelievable. But it really, that time stretch feels like a long time. I mean, yes, it has been like 20 some years or 20 years, but it feels longer, I think, than it is. It really does. I mean, uh, if I think back, if I think that I graduated from Colombia in 2003 and that that was almost 20 years ago, it's that's when it is super (laughs) shocking. (laughs) Right. So when did you so you grew up? Did you grow up in uh, Iran? I was born in Iran, yes, mm-hmm. and um, we moved to the U.S. My family moved to the U.S. when I was eight years old, so uh, I was quite young when we came over. That would have been 1986. Where did you move to? Uh, we moved to Ohio in Cincinnati, where my aunt, places, uh, <laughs> yeah, where my aunt and uncle lived. So imagine Ohio in 1986, and Cincinnati yeah. has its own history of. Uh, conservative politics so uh, uh you know it was uh yeah not an easy move at the time yeah i can imagine i mean i'm from pittsburgh uh-huh. so in 86 you know i was a 12 year old running around pittsburgh being an idiot you know so i that i think cincinnati cleveland pittsburgh it's kind of those provincial towns have a a feel to them you know yeah. so was it culture shock i mean were you did you assimilate pretty easily or did was it was it rough you know, it's it's one of those things that you don't notice when you're an eight-year-old kid and you yeah. start to pick up on uh, the kind of um, trauma of immigration when, when you're older and, um, you know, going over it with a therapist. So yeah. it's, uh, you know, it's, it's um, I think in many ways it was a culture shock. I did not speak English. Uh, I... Um, I was excited about it in some ways and, and kind of, uh, uh, I think, disappointed in other ways. Um, but certainly, you know, uh, 1986 was not long after the hostage crisis. And, um, you know, uh, as being identified as an Iranian kid, uh, you know, in school and uh, it wasn't fun, but I had some really amazing teachers. I had, uh, I had, I, I went to a public school, but had these teachers who would um, meet one. Uh, my second grade teacher met me in the morning. My parents would take me an hour before class, and uh, my third, my third grade teacher would meet me in the afternoon after school and uh, help me with my English. So, uh, yeah, there was also a lot of love and care. That's good. Um, was the did you were you always creative? Was like drawing something you had a hobby with, or or being creative? I, I would think that as a kid that age too, like you're saying, you your environment maybe it's not hyper conscious of a sort of engagement with a new environment, but a lot of times as a young person you find solace or comfort in certain things, whether that's. TV shows or going to movies or, you know, sports. It could be anything. But yeah. did you have that release? I think uh, the maybe the best way to look at it is that I always had a very active imagination. And I, I still, to this day, I um, lose track of the fact that it's not the case for everybody. You know, I, did, I didn't, right. in, in some ways, I felt very different than everybody else, especially in my own family. Um, but in other ways, uh, I, I never imagined that 
my active imagination was something unique to me. Uh, but I did, I, I was interested in some kind of creative output from a very young age. And um, I started playing drums when I was nice. quite young. I, I was terrible at it. And in fact, I was so bad at it that I think even the uh, teacher recognized, you know, when I started in school. Um, but by the time I was in high school, I was kind of, um, you know, uh, I was, let's say, like, one of the best drummers in the high school. And, nice. then, um, and, and um, of course, you know, it's that thing when you go to art school, too, where you think you're like, really good at what you do until you go uh, to a place where all those people who were very good at what they did meet together, right. you know, and, and you realize yeah. that you uh, actually don't know as much as you thought you did. So, God, I wish um, I had that feeling. I never felt good at it. <laughs> <laughs> Still don't. Yeah. Um, but it's funny because rhythm is something that you would think, um, you know, because I, I played music my whole life, but I never played drums necessarily, but I would always go in our band practices in high school or whenever I'd go, you know, you go mess around on the drums and I think most people who are musicians can hold a beat. They have a rhythm to it. Um, did you, when you said you struggled at first, I mean, did you find rhythm or was it just practice or was it within you and you just had to negotiate it with drumming? Like, you know, that's an interesting question. I don't know the answer to it. Uh, I think when I first started playing drums, it was one of those things where, you know, you have a music class and each person chooses an instrument and everybody wanted to play drums, you know, sure. it's like, uh, it's so, fun. yeah, <laughs> everybody wants to bang every, around on something. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, I can't say what it was that I wasn't good at. Uh, but, uh, I can say that when I did become good at it through a lot of hard work, uh, I, I sort of, um, I found it very liberating to have internalized a technique to the degree that um, I could kind of allow it to do its own thing and that yeah. I could channel something from within myself and from outside of myself uh, that, I, that I almost felt like I was the vehicle for something that was taking place that uh, was almost beyond my own free will. Right. Uh, yeah. it, it, and that's when uh, playing drums got really excited for me, exciting for me. Yeah. You know, I've spent my life, I'd like to consider myself a unprofessional, um, real enthusiast of music. You know, I DJed in college and jazz and played music and I love music. And I know a lot about a lot of different music from all over the world. I can't say that I know that much about Iranian music. I mean, I Pakistan, India, like you know, but I'm not that familiar. I mean, what did you grow up listening to? What was the was there music in the house? Or? Yeah, there was definitely a lot of Iranian music uh, in the house. Uh, I think you know my mother probably made more of an effort to assimilate than my father did. He mm -hmm. never really w seemed too interested in assimilating, and he he kind of um, uh, to this day reads the. Uh, reads his Persian poetry and um, yeah. and, and, and growing up the music that was uh, prevalent in the house was really uh, more classical Iranian music we call it classical although it's um, 
it's quite modern in the way that uh, it, in, in comparison to the music of, let's say, 50, 60, 100 years ago. Right. Um, so um, it's quite composed, but it's also quite improvised. So it, there, there is actually, uh, you can draw a parallel to jazz quite easily, where, that, yeah. where there are structures and, um, let's say, almost... Um, Almost like a a, a roadmap, mm-hmm. you know. This uh, there's an introduction, and then this happens, and then that happens, and then this instrument improvises for as long as it takes to get through that cycle, and yeah. then everybody comes back in, and there's a conclusion, and you know. So that uh, that kind of structure exists very much in the type of music that uh, I grew up listening to in the house, and then on the other hand, there's the Iranian kind of uh, pre-revolutionary pop. Mm-hmm. Which was like um, Gugu, Shaida, um, Vigan, uh, these um, uh, Iranian kind of pop stars of the 60s and 70s, um, and, and, and before Del Cash, like from the 50s. And, and uh, yeah, so um, yeah, my parents listened to that stuff all the time. I did grow, I didn't really get interested in it myself until I got past my. Uh, attempts at assimilation. <laughs> right, right. Now, between the two genres, the older and then the pop stuff, is it? Do they both contain like singing in Farsi? They do. Okay. Yeah. But I'm, I'm pretty. Sh- it's probably a different kind of singing, I would imagine. Right. More, uh, you know, uh, uh, on the classical and more kind of um, Sufi poetry, and yeah, um, yeah. Uh, uh, on the pop and you know pop lyrics. Right. Yeah, I'll have to look into it. I recently got into, through, you know, family friends, like Turkish music and like mm. traditional and then more contemporary. And it's it's so funny with music from anywhere around the world, you can, you can almost hear these parallels of influence or these, you know, things that, that, that relate to other kinds of music. It's interesting. I mean, it's just human nature. It doesn't matter like where you are. You could draw these lines between different ways of expression through music. And the same thing with art. You know, I think. Sure, and what, you know, when when we talk about traditional Iranian music, I mean, there's this kind of um, this kind of faux Iranian nationalism that uh, came about. Let's say, um, I don't know exactly when it came about, maybe eighty years ago or so. Um, but um, that uh, Iranian music really consists of many different. Uh, ethnicities and many different um, kind of uh, tribal musics and you know whether you're talking about um, Bandari music from the uh, the kind of Gulf region or mm-hmm. whether you're talking about um, you know uh, Kurdish music which is uh, quite um, important I think in the in in for me at least in Iranian uh, music and 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 it's definitely important to um, what we call the classical Iranian music so um, yeah yeah but um, so when you came here but you were you getting into you know art or I think where, where did art enter in and we also like into American music getting into like you know that kind of stuff as well with the drumming yeah you know uh, well I was unfortunately I wasn't surrounded by uh, super talented musicians mm-hmm. or or the ones that were super talented musicians weren't necessarily um, 
interested in the same kind of music as I was. So the the kind of bands that I played with when I was in high school were never anything that I would, I really want, I, I thought would have a future, you know. Right. And um, I, um, I guess, I don't know when was, you know, if the, I don't know if that necessarily there was like a transition from music to visual art because they overlapped and they're not mutually exclusive. But uh, I think the when I really first started um, making paintings in high school, I, I was already, I think, like 17 years old. So I came relatively late to it. Uh, I was never super good at drawing. Uh, I liked to draw, but I was never really a proficient drafts person. And so, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) And so I had to really work hard to learn it. You know, once I I think the first painting I ever made was um, over a holiday break from school where I I took uh, an old National Geographic magazine and I painted the cover, uh, which was a portrait of a a woman from Sicily. And um, and as I kind of, I had this beginner set of acrylics and as I started kind of uh, layering the paint and the paint would dry and I would kind of drag one color over another, I, I was immediately taken by how, um, you know, painting wasn't coloring. It was that, uh, that you would, you know, that, that you could kind of get this effect from the layering of paint. And so, uh, so, you know, from my first painting, I was really attracted to what the material could do. And I took it into my high school art teacher, who was Adam Walter, who was probably 25 years old at the time. Oh, wow. And um, and he he was taken by it. And he just he just looked at the painting for a few minutes. And then he looked at me and he said, we we have to get you painting. And and I sort of said, okay. I mean, I was just, it never seemed like something I wanted to pursue. I just said, okay. And I started painting and it was yeah. just a way for me to uh, stay busy. And, um, you know, I, I was, he, he was very nice to allow me to uh, give me excuses to leave other classes to go help him with something, quote yeah. unquote, which meant to just go sit in the art room and paint. Right. Yeah, um, it's funny because you don't think about the future of that stuff when you're doing it's just like like i remember i had a cool teacher in high school who was she was funny and you know she encouraged it and it was just a good vibe in that room you know you just wanted to be there working and maybe part of that too is like you know math even though i was okay at it in high school i did well it wasn't fun right (laughs) you know so art was a place where you could like have fun and just i don't know it felt better you know but you weren't thinking like oh this is something well at least for me yeah. I wasn't thinking, you know, oh, I'm going to go to school for art. It was just a, a fun class and something I, I love to do, you know. Yeah. So, but you ended up, didn't you go to MICA for undergrad? I did, I did. Um, so you I, did choose art. <laughs> I did, yeah. And, <clears throat> you know, um, it's hard to remember exactly what were the reasons for that. But I did decide that I wanted to study art and... um I had, you know, to be honest, I I didn't, I, I was not academically engaged and I was not really super interested in going to college at the time. And so I thought that going to art school would be a good compromise. Yeah. And um, of course, after a few years at MICA, I quickly came to realize that um, 
I was longing for the academics that I wasn't really getting there. Ah, the old so, art school. Yeah. It's like the grass is always greener. Because I went to universities and, and then you would see people at art school and be like, oh, that must be nice. Nothing but art. And then people in art school are like, oh, it'd be cool to take an elective in something outside of art, you know? Yeah. And I had, uh, you know, I, that, I don't want to um, discredit Micah altogether for that in, in that aspect because I did have some incredible mentors who uh, took me down that other road. Um, one of them was uh, a, a photographer uh, named um, Harry Madison, who taught mm -hmm. a literature class and um, gave me kind of access to things that I wouldn't have had anywhere else. Um, he was a he was a photojournalist and had uh, been a war photographer, and um, he had a more of a global outlook than most of the people that uh, I knew at MICA. Yeah. And so, you know, he was the first person who said, who saw what I was interested in making, I think, in my junior year at MICA. And he said, you have to read Edward Said. And, and that kind of was maybe um, where it all started for me in terms of uh, who I am as an artist today. Yeah, it was like one of those light bulb moments or like you know a door opens you know yeah um what were you making back then um i started off as a figurative painter i was really interested in becoming as proficient as i could possibly be in figurative painting and micah had a very technical training for me at least um and they had that available uh a lot of drawing color mixing um you know you had uh uh, there were some instructors who would have you, you would paint from the model and they yeah. would they would um, some instructors would have you spent like uh, a whole session you know they had these timings so the model could take a break I don't know how long yeah. it was five ten minutes whatever they had you spend an ex entire session just mixing color wow um, and so you know uh, uh, and, and not to mention the foundation uh, class where an artist named Claudia Matsko, who was uh, a huge influence on quite a few of us, uh, was my foundation teacher, and I learned uh, an immense uh, amount from her. Nice. Well, when did the um, the figurative turn elsewhere? <laughs> I think I just got so bored with it, you know, yeah. uh, that I was no longer making art. They, they became these kind of exercises. And... Um, and it it started to feel to me um it it, it i started to maybe dislike painting it, it it felt kind of dead to me dry like a chore yeah it's uh i mean it was engaging to some degree but it wasn't expressing anything you know and 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 there was this almost um there was like almost a dogmatic attitude toward uh, figurative painting with a certain group of students and teachers. And, um, and that really turned me off. And um, I remember I was in, uh, I was in one of these painting classes with the model and I was working on my painting and I just started 
painting flowers on top of the uh, whole thing, just like kind of very graphic flowers. Yeah. And um, the teacher came behind me and just went, ugh, and then walked away. <laughs> And I kind of, and that was, that was, you know, and this was a teacher who had been so supportive and who had been, uh, you know, um, really kind of, uh, I'd, I'd learned a lot from her. I don't even remember her name. Um, but, uh, you know, things started to change then. But I think also it was just, you know, it was time. You know, you go through this. I, I always knew that I had to go through this process of learning painting. And maybe that has something to do with, my experience as a drummer that, you know, when I became proficient at playing drums is when I had the freedom to kind of truly play. Yeah. And so maybe, I don't know, maybe I had this attitude that if I become proficient at painting, then I can truly kind of allow it to do its own thing, which I think right. was true in a way. Yeah. It's, I mean, I think it's not mandatory, but for a lot of people, it's, it's essential to sort of like get a foundation it's almost like you gotta, you gotta pack all your bag with the supplies to leave it at the door. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. because if you just barge in there with nothing, you know, it just feels like, well, I went through this. I learned these sort of like core things that uh, either unconsciously or consciously I can use, but I don't need to use them. You know, I can branch out. I can take it to another level. But I'm interested is if when you made this transition from the sort of technical you know, practice into, okay, well, now I want to do something that feels more like art making, less like, you know, uh, an exercise. Did it time, did it link up with other events in your life, reading, like you were mentioning literature, whatever it is, or personal stuff that you say, okay, well, now I can move away from the exercise and move it into a narrative of a conceptual um, relationship to my life or to things that I'm interested in? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, I think there was definitely, like I said, that uh, Harry Madison uh, introducing me to uh, the work of Edward Said and yeah. um, uh, becoming, in a lot of ways, uh, let me think about this. I'm trying to take myself back to that moment, which was now so, <laughs> as we said, so long Don't ago. Don't ask me. I can't remember any of that stuff. It's all a blur. Yeah. It's okay if it's fuzzy, right? Our memories are like, you know, we're trying to recall, but it's not always crystal well, clear. Yeah, that's how, uh, yeah. <laughs> but um, I do remember that there was, uh, it, it was the late 90s, and um, I do remember beginning to encounter the 90s approach to identity politics. Yeah. And I remember uh, something about it turned me off. And um, I, I think very early on, I, uh, as I read Orientalism, I realized that Mm, there, there was perhaps this kind of self-orientalizing uh, approach or self-exoticizing approach that many artists had that I wanted to avoid. Yeah. And I, you know, early on, I don't know if I avoided it. I was a student. I was figuring things out. Um, but I think that was a big motivation for me to very early on begin to work with Islamic geometric pattern yeah. 
Yeah. Um, which is kind of how I became interested in working with and exploring uh, ornament and notions of the decorative. Right. Do you feel like, uh, I mean, I don't know, as a white middle America American guy, you know what I mean? I have no relationship to this idea, but um, it, do you imagine it's completely or very different of a process now as a student thinking about identity and pulling on certain things within your own past culture, history, or whatever than it than it would have been back when you were in school? Do you know what I mean? Well, it's a very different environment, yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, and... Um, I think that it was, there were far fewer artists of color having any kind of platform then. Yeah. And the ones who were given a platform uh, often had to, in some explicit way, perform their identity. Right. And so... um, it's a very different uh, it's a very different world out there today, although I do think that a lot of artists still happily perform their identity right. and I don't think they need to yeah uh, but that's you know uh, it's, it's how, how do you identify you know how do you identify who's performing their identity and who's well just only only they know you know what I mean but you we all have to live with our own our own choices and you know what we're doing but yeah only the person knows yeah exactly but yeah i agree like it it does seem like in the 90s or like early on earlier on it it was almost and i'm sure galleries had a huge hand in that because it's probably other artists you know there are other artists from other places making work that wasn't just about you know like you said performing their identity but they wouldn't want to show that because that doesn't that's not like like I'll give you an example like when Murakami came out it was like okay everyone wanted or not everyone but dealers would be interested in a Japanese artist who makes stuff that looks like manga or anime right and it's like that's so one note you know what I mean there's like people making amazing stuff that has nothing to do but you know it's almost like okay well we need to get that one artist from that place who does that thing and then ideally nowadays there, there may be people who still make work that is in, you know, in in a framework of what they understand. I don't know. Now it just seems like the, the door is much more open, I would hope. Yeah. I think so. I think so. And, you know, what I have always told my students is something that I learned from uh, experience, which is that uh, the the most successful work that you can possibly make will come from being as honest as you can be with what you believe you should be making. Uh, so as, if you're as honest as you can be with the work itself, it's it's um, uh, far more likely to succeed than if you're kind of uh, feeling the pressure to make something that uh, is expected of you, let's say. Right. It sounds so easy, right? Hey, just listen to yourself and do it. But <laughs> in the moment, I'm sure, like, you know, it's, it's difficult because... You know, there's all that pressure. Like, what if I do that? You know, when you're younger and you're a student, you can't. It's hard to to break out or to have that confidence in a way. You know. Yeah, 
And then as you well, just it's still hard to have yeah. that confidence. You know, I mean, uh, the thing that uh, you know for for me, it's um, the other thing that I feel like makes when I'm making my best work is when I'm trying to figure it out. You know, so I, I feel like I'm always trying to figure it out. And um, if I have if I have something figured out and I try to execute it. It always fails for me, you know. It's like yeah, there's yeah. always there's something about that search for it that, that that makes it more interesting, maybe. Right, but I guess the thing that that happens is the longer you do it, you're okay with the whole figuring it out bit. Right. But when you're just Absolutely. starting out, the you're really self conscious about that because you're like, well, you know, is this me or is this what I should be doing? You know, and then you just it's not that you get comfortable necessarily in the work you're making you get comfortable in being uncomfortable or just not knowing, you know, the, right. it's like the more, you know, the more comfortable you are with what you don't know. And you try to go after that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I guess so. I mean, I'm trying to remember the last time I was comfortable. <laughs> like I'll, I'll give you, yeah, I know. No, I mean, comfortable with being uncomfortable. So I'll right, give you an example. Right. Like when I first, like my first show, what 99 or, or 2000 like it protests right across the street from where you know yeah. and i remember my cv being on the desk and it was like nothing on there yeah <laughs> and i was like so like worried that people were gonna be like oh this dude like he, there's nothing they haven't done anything you yeah. know what i mean and then like as you get older you're just like you're fine like i would love to go back to that day in a way, right, you know what right, I mean? Right, right, because yeah. like you, you do stuff. It's not a big deal or whatever. And there's something nice about, you know, taking that first step. But it's almost like you can't see the forest from the trees. I guess. Yeah, I know. I know what you're saying. Yeah, it's um. Let's just say uh, for me, it's maybe you. You become more confident that you will figure it out. Yeah, that's kind of uh, the thing that um, the thing that's happened for me in the studio over the years is that. Uh, um, you 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 you're confident that you know you you can figure it out eventually that you just have to keep working through it and even though it's uncomfortable it will fall into place um, see i feel comfortable that i'll never figure it out <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know what i mean yeah, and yeah do i really want like to your point earlier do i really want to figure it out you right, know what i mean right, yeah. can you ever really nail it you know what i mean and then is art dead whenever you do that you know, right, and then you just right. start like, um, it, it's totally different and weird analogy, but like musicians who make that first album or that song that just kills it. Like it's, you know, almost perfect. And yeah. it's like, is that a blessing or a curse? Because yeah, where then do you it's go like, from there? Nothing's going to be as good as that one. You know what right, I mean? And right. then you're just chasing that, that feeling for the rest of your life. Or is it better to make things that are good and you feel like you keep building on it but you know you're never going to get that one song that just like you know is epic i don't know it's, right. that's the beauty of it i think sure and i think maybe the difference with visual art is that we don't have that kind of audience to kind of reinforce your confidence of like having a hit you know right. yeah. so uh, not like, happen <laughs> yeah yeah so i think you know uh uh, the the feeling that I can kind of um, relate to that is the feeling of finishing a show and yeah. feeling really good about your show that this is you know this is, you feel like this is um, 
you've really done your best and and ideally you would feel like every show you've done so far is your best so far right, right. or right. every three shows maybe and yeah. um and then going back to the studio and just kind of realizing that maybe like you just feeling that that maybe that was it you know that that oh yeah you, you kind of okay so am i ever going to be able to put something together like that again and then right. it, it and then it's a cycle and i guess what i mean by uh, I, I guess my feeling of w- what i mean by the confidence that you gain over the years is that once you've been through that cycle enough then you become confident that it's just part of the cycle that you're yeah. just you, that you're going to feel like that and then you're going to get back into the studio and it's going to be uncomfortable and that uncomfortable that discomfort is growth right right uh, i mean i need to something yeah, I learned that lesson. I mean, I I was taught that lesson. I, I don't think I learned it until I experienced it. But um, a painter named Timothy App, who I studied with at MICA, who's a, an abstract painter who I was uh, very close to and recently revisited, and I was actually reminding him of uh, this story where I, w- I would go into his office hours at MICA uh, every week just to chat. And... Um, one time, I don't remember what I was whining about, but he said, he just kind of sat there and calmly said to me, are you uncomfortable? And I said, uh, yeah, that's exactly it. And he said, um, good, get used to it. <laughs> and he, he had this kind of laconic way of uh, answering my questions. And that was the end yeah. of that conversation. <laughs> right. Yeah. But it stuck. It was a good one, you know. It's like, yeah. well, this feeling's going to be around for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, did you, so that shift that you were making, did that sort of um, crystallize a bit in grad school or did did things start to really take shape at Columbia? Absolutely. I mean, I went to Columbia because, uh, well, for one main reason, uh, that, that's because I had, uh, I had seen um, Carol Walker's work and I wanted to study with her. I knew that she taught at Columbia and I also... Uh, uh, was interested in, um, and I knew that it was, you know, I would probably not meet him. I was interested in the fact that Edward Said taught at Columbia. And nice. at that point he was, you know, kind of present, but I, I did meet him once. Um, and uh, uh, I feel that, um, you know, but in general, that kind of academic environment was appealing to me because I wanted to play a little catch up, let's say. And um, so I did take uh, a lot of classes um, uh, outside of the art department and um, met some brilliant people and um, including, you know, Coco Fusco had uh, kind of recruited a few of us from the art department to take uh, a class in the anthropology department with Mick Tausig, uh, Michael Tausig, the uh, Australian-American anthropologist. And... um, so, uh, yeah, so, and the people that I studied with at Columbia um, were a pretty wide range of practices. So, you know, I mentioned Coco, Kara, uh, um, but then, you know, um, Charlene Von Hale was one of the mentors that we had this mentor program where you would uh, kind of be uh, in a small group with an artist for a week and, and all of you would kind of drop all of your other classes for that week to just spend the entire week with this uh, person. And Charlene was one, Janine Antoni, um, John Kessler was a huge influence. John Kessler was one of the people who brought me there and he was uh, 
Uh, he's still one of the most generous um, artists and, and kind of mentors uh, I've encountered. Um, and uh, Coco blew my mind. You know, there was a lot of, uh, yeah, it definitely things opened up for me in a, in a very significant way. Yeah, you know, it's funny, I think these days, and, and it makes sense because of, you know, the environment of money and society and all that stuff in education, but, you know, there's this feeling of like, oh, do you need to go to grad school, or like it's overrated, or it's expensive, or don't bother, you know, there's a there's a lot of that, but there is something to be said for the experience that you have in certain places, you know what I mean, and outside of, I think, the garden variety of like, oh careerists like oh you go to this place because you it'll help you get a gallery or something but the, i mean you know when i went to graduate school the, the other classes i took and the people i met the visiting artists it was amazing you yeah. know it wasn't it wasn't necessarily the school it was the environment you know it was the it was the the, the people around and the experiences that stuff is so valuable i think and yeah. the seriousness of it you know yeah, definitely. Well, it's also a very different time that uh, we were in graduate school. So, um, you know, currently, yeah. right now, as we speak, I actually haven't been teaching for a couple semesters, but I was uh, teaching at uh, Parsons and, and kind of, um, I'm still on the faculty there, I'm on leave, but uh, 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 on the part-time faculty, and uh, as you may have heard, we're on strike, right? Yeah. Uh, and so much of... Uh, you know, the experience of graduate school that uh, we had, I think, is different than what the students have now uh, in yeah. many ways, in, in many institutions. And, and, and this, um, the institution is a kind of um, either, I mean, on the one hand, a, a sort of um, like luxury uh, experience, like a luxury yeah. product or something. Yeah, like a concierge um, service. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, 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 I think that that's, uh, you know, there were times as a teacher that you would feel like, um, like a concierge, yeah. uh, and then, and then on the other hand, as, as this kind of uh, corporation, you know, yeah. so uh, where uh, the decisions that are being made are primarily um, uh, made for profit and not for you know, education, or even just how to keep the place afloat. Um, but the thing that needs to be kept afloat has become so much more expensive, right? Right. Uh, right. And, and all these universities expanding, and, you know, we have to support, uh, we have to build, we built this new building, so, you know, uh, now tuitions, whatever, $80,000 or whatever it yeah. was, you know. Administrative costs, all that stuff. Exactly, yeah. So, uh, yeah, administration um is another story, and that's a big grievance of the uh, new school strike. Yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, without getting into that uh, too deeply, since I'm not there on the ground myself, right. it's, uh, you know, I, I think that the experience that I had in graduate school, I feel, was very special. And I, I feel very lucky to have, uh, you know, worked with the people that I did. And, and you know, in a lot of ways, that it, there was this kind of... Um, old school model that may not fly uh, anymore because it was so loose and open. And I think maybe um, that looseless, loose, looseness and openness um, was, could be problematic at times if yeah. it was mis mismanaged or, or mishandled or if there was a kind of, you know, 
somebody acting inappropriately or whatever. But um, but that looseness was also such an essential part of my education. I think you know. I totally agree, and it puts you in a weird spot because you don't want to feel like an old person saying like, "Well, when I was in school, <laughs> yeah, we all slept in the studios and it was crazy," you know. But there was something to that energy, you know. Yeah. And but you realize that it's just different now. It's different, yeah, and and I think that unfortunately. You know, to, like people took advantage of that uh, openness and um, yeah. you know uh, behaved uh, horribly, and That's true. Um, That's you know, true. And, and and so it's like you know, it's hard to um, it's it's hard to kind of gauge what's the appropriate way to kind of uh, educate young artists these days. You know, um, right. and I think that the most you know, I I tell a lot of my students, I you know, I say like I know that we all. You know, we all, we're, let's, if we can all come to this place with, out of a, with a, with like good and positive intentions and like we can all agree that we're here, we're all here from a position of love and respect and support, yeah. then we can be so much more open and sensitive to each other uh, without kind of building this uh really rigid structure in which one can't be really truly creative you know right yeah you can't so take any chances you, you can't know? take any chances you're afraid if you make the wrong work you'll be you know ostracized by your fellow students yeah. or if you say the wrong thing or if you don't agree with someone or you know um and 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 of course there's certain people who's uh you know uh, are a little more aggressive with you know I was always one of the passive students I was like very kind of quiet and I was quite young when I went to graduate school I went yeah, straight out of uh, Micah so yeah I kind of kept my mouth shut and listened you know <laughs> and yeah. so I, I I kind of um, learned a lot that way but um, but that can also be very disempowering uh, you know if it, it and, and it was at times it was really uh, difficult for me that yeah. um, you know, I didn't have the same kind of um, confidence or drive to uh, maybe stand up for myself the way that I should have. So it's complicated. <laughs> it is really complicated. I, I guess it's always complicated for different in different ways. You know, it's just each era creates new problems. Some are solved and new ones pop up. But you know, that's what we try to negotiate. You know, as teachers, yeah. it's yeah. different. You know, and then COVID threw a whole monkey wrench in everything as well, because you used to be able to say, hey, work hard, be there all the time, you know, like, and now you understand, like, you know, it's changed a lot of the way just people move and the way people work and do things. It's definitely, it's a big shift. Um, okay, so, well, and, and then the work you're doing, you know, from getting out of school till now, which is a pretty good amount of time. You know, yeah, it's funny. We spent so much time talking about uh, everything that uh, th about uh, you know, <laughs> everything before I actually became a, a working artist. <laughs> well, I think it's uh, it's I think it says a lot about the art. You know yeah. what I mean? It's really interesting to hear people's stories because I think it informs the art. Not not directly necessarily, but you know, it's the story that doesn't get to be told. Really, sure. You know, we, yeah. we all walk into a gallery, we see the work, and we're all going to come up with our ideas about it or you know we're going to bring baggage of our own and there's going to be interpretations or whatever but i think it's interesting to hear you know what makes people tick and then that 
goes into the work, you know. Yeah. But, you know, in thinking about your work and thinking about, you know, this um, hybridity of abstraction, but a relationship to certain shapes that are, you know, reflected in architecture or pattern or design or modernism. And, um, you know, that's, did that come to you through the act of working with abstraction or was it kind of a genesis point and you've been working through that? You know, what was the sort of, I don't know, not chicken and egg sort of thing, but uh, what's that dynamic like as far as the way you think about making your images? And I'm sure there's a lot of it that's in the painting itself that you're exploring the physicality and, you know, that side of it. I felt that at the time I wanted to engage what was going on around me and in the world a little bit more directly. And I found that iconography was uh, maybe a more efficient way to do so. Years later, I found that I I came back to abstraction and and became more and more interested in how form can function politically and how um, uh, how a a more how I can redefine formalism the same way that I kind of am interested in redefining uh, the decorative or the ornamental. I also want to try to uh, redefine how we think about uh, formalist approach to painting. Yeah. Where where do you feel you are now in that arc? Well, I think I'm... Uh, right now, I'm very much uh, interested in uh, making work that could be considered in some ways um, formalist, but not in the conventional way that we understand it um, art historically, you know? Yeah. So... Um, so I, I, I'm interested in kind of exploring the potential for abstraction to uh, maybe function more politically or more um, in, in, in a way to uh, maybe renegotiate some of the terms in which art history was written. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I mean, you know, every... Art history has so many threads, you know, and we kind of... Uh, there are certain things that are chosen as the uh, uh, so-called canon, right? And right. I think right now we're in the process of renegotiating that what we think of as that canon in many ways, you know? So yeah. uh, I remember talking with a friend about um, the grid and, uh, you know, every time we I talk about the grid, she asked me about the grid and I, I said to her that... Um, the well, I think of the grid as basically the f- beginning of ornament, the beginning of pattern. It's the first. It's the first step toward uh, building any kind of pattern. Right. And um, and she uh, she said to me, "Oh, that's interesting that you know you didn't immediately mention Rosalind Krauss." And I thought, well, that's. I mean, <laughs> it's and and things have been written about my work where you know they're talked about Rosalind Krauss um, and and that's good and that's important but it's it's kind of funny how that is the only way that we can see the grid now right that is through this one kind of uh, text and um, which is an important one but uh, you know 
Maybe there's a lot out. There's a lot else out there. Well, in Clement Greenberg too. You mentioned that. I mean, that's such a, you know, it's. I mean, that is the canon. But I think the, to your point, I mean, if you think about music too, there's that canon of of popular music or what has been recorded and kind of kept. But the fun of like going back and finding all this other stuff from everywhere else that's, you know, wasn't that main line of discussion that wasn't the monopolized you know here is the canon yeah um that there's something wonderful about finding that stuff and you find a lot of people going back and and you know and and being inspired by that and injecting that those ideas maybe not you know literally but injecting that stuff into the work now which is i think that's what keeps us going like there cannot be just one canon there cannot be just one lane there often is a narrative that's constructed by people and sometimes yeah. those stories are the ones that get told now with technology there's a lot more stories being recorded and told and it's a little more difficult to have that one narrative and then as soon as that happens and frees everyone from the canon then you get people who are complaining like well twitter now everyone has a voice and it's yeah. a gaggle of like craziness and maybe not everyone <laughs> maybe not everyone should be talking it's funny yeah well there's got to be a happy funny. medium as, as you were, right? as you were talking i just i was thinking to myself like God, am i sitting here actually talking about greenberg and, and it's like you know you, you become so sick of even saying the name you know and it's and, and and i'll say that there's a lot in greenberg that i find to be really fascinating and, and, and actually important, right? But mm-hmm. uh, but I, I kind of was just laughing at myself. I'm like, here you are sitting in an interview talking about Greenberg. Like, why? Why you would, you know, it's like, and, and I really appreciate, I should be more talking about uh, someone like Katie Siegel, who's writing mm-hmm. I really appreciate uh, because she does go back and kind of um, find some of those overlooked uh, histories and some of those artists who were practically written out of uh their history and um so uh you know there there are uh, important kind of uh, art historical voices that maybe i should be uh mentioning before kind of just citing <laughs> like citing greenberg again well it's you know it's the uh do you do you mention the problem or do you mention the solution you know it's, right, right, it's yeah. like all part of the it's all part of our our experience you know what i mean grappling with certain things that you feel like shouldn't be that way and yearning for the way things you feel like they should be you know yeah. so that's all part of the equation um all right a couple more things one is what is your studio practice like i mean what's your day like when you're hitting making work i mean are you rhythmic about it or you go through fits and starts um are you working for long amounts of time on it like what's your work working process like um i i tend to uh go to the studio almost every day and i um i tend to keep fairly regular hours um i'm a primarily a daytime worker i i, I leave the studio by seven six seven sometimes eight o'clock and um, I used to be much more of a flaneur and um, I used to spend much more time outside of the studio um, uh, you know when things get busy it's it's hard to do that um, yeah 
and of course the pandemic kind of makes it a little bit less fun to be a flaneur <laughs> so um, yeah. Uh, um, but yeah I tend to keep fairly regular hours in the studio and um, I, music I, or silence what's that music or silence um, podcasts or news or you know oftentimes music um, there are those days where I put on the news in the morning just to hear what's going on in the world and then I realize it's three hours later and I've listened to like three NPR shows and I I don't like those days and you're depressed <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> news um, is so depressing isn't it boy yeah and it's also just like you don't really need to hear somebody else talk all day right um, and so I uh yeah, I tend to um, sometimes it depends on what I'm doing, really, you yeah. know, because I, I feel like for uh, if I'm doing something that's more uh, assembling a sculpture or kind of doing kind of something that's closer to fabrication or uh, that that kind of work, I can listen to the news or a podcast or whatever. Yeah. But if I really want to be present uh, with the painting, I the music really affects me and so um it's not only that it has to be music but it has to be a particular kind of music and if i'm putting on let's say nts radio and if something comes on that's not really that's a little too aggressive or something i'll definitely have to change it yeah is there any new stuff that you're into with music oh god i you know it's it's funny I, when i was teaching something that uh this was a, a while ago. I haven't done this in a very long time because it's been a while since I've taught a class. Mm -hmm. I've been doing um, more studio visits. But when I was teaching classes, I would often um, have like a fun assignment where um, I would have each student, and usually there were some something between 10 and 15 students, I would have each student make a little mix for everybody else. Nice. And um, back, back, in the day we used to do them on CDs, like everybody would burn, you know, 12 CDs or whatever. Right. Um, and then um, you could, you know, then it, it, the, the problem with playlists is that they don't, there's no limit. So right. people could do like 60 songs or whatever. And, it, <laughs> and, and they don't really, you know, it just feel like the craft of making a mix is lost that's, in the playlist era. Yeah. But, um, but that's how I used to learn about a lot of new music. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Mixtapes so, were great. Yeah, and from and from from younger people. So, yeah, <laughs> but um, I, I I think one of the things I will say that I, I enjoy listening to in the studio uh, when there's noise, uh, because there's noise outside of my studio or upstairs or whatever. Um, I find that more minimal music and kind of concrete music can uh, absorb the noise, and is more kind of empathetic to the environment yeah. so I'll put on like if I put on like Elian Radig it will inevitably kind of absorb whatever noise is outside and and yeah. um, and and make it more uh, less distracting in a way right. so uh, sometimes it's that um, the Brian Eno and Roger Eno uh, their colors record mm -hmm. has been recently on uh, on my rotation Nice. And then, um, and then on the days where you know, um, especially I have a person who comes in once a week to help me, and uh, we like just put on NTS radio, 
and um, that's usually pretty fun and uh, more energetic than uh, that other stuff. Right. Yeah. No, it sounds good. Um, well, how can people find your work? What's the uh, the best way for them to keep up with what you're doing? Um, I guess. God, I don't want to say Instagram. Um, my website. Yeah, we use it. It's okay. <laughs> my website. Uh, I keep pretty updated. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, the exhibition that I would love to share with people is the show that I did at the Arts Club of Chicago um, in over, I guess it was from April until August of 2022. I have some uh, pretty good images of that on my website. And um, Peter Bloom is publishing a uh, book of the of work of the last six or so years nice um which should be we ran into some printing hurdles it should be i don't know i'm guessing probably early next year available oh that's great so um yeah cool well listen thanks so much for taking the time out it was a pleasure to talk to you thank you so much it was really nice to speak with you as well and um yeah it was kind of fun to go back to those early days yeah right it's cool (laughs) um well thanks sound division is recorded edited and produced by myself brian alfred you can find out more about the podcast by checking out the website sounddivisionpodcast.com or checking out images on instagram at sounddivisionpodcast you can find out more about my work at brianalford.net or at alfred studio on instagram Many thanks to Kam Roos for taking the time out to speak with me. He's got to show up now at Gallery Para 10 in New York City. Many thanks to Golden Artist Colors and Fulcrum Coffee for the sponsorship. I just got a slew of golden paints from Golden and pretty excited to make some, some new paintings. So check out their acrylics, their Williamsburg oils, their core watercolors. It's like the best stuff. Highly recommended. And holiday gift idea maybe is uh why i make art the sound of podcast book it's on sale now for 21 dollars so grab yourself a copy and give it to an art friend for the holidays thanks all for listening we got some great episodes coming up stay tuned